Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their money monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we're going to hit all three M's, taking a look at the state of X, this time featuring Josh, Steve, and Drew, talking about their favorite titles on the market, the state of X-Men as it is, and who they think might be the stars of the next Hellfire Gala, followed by Mighty Valkyries and a trade rating special where we take a look at the complete run of Power Pack, The Powers That Be, a title we began coverage of. But first up, check out that State of X, hear what some of our correspondents are reading and what they hope to see in the future. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might like what you see. So give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon, where you can interact with the show and help shape the future of what we cover. Welcome back to X is for Podcast. This week, we're going to have a special end of Summers Brothers wrap up where we talk about some of our favorite comics in and out of the X line. With me this week is Steven. Steven, say hi and tell us where we can find you. Hi, it's me, Steve. You can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I have recorded for X of Us for podcasts previously, and you can sometimes find me over on X of Words. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I'm Josh Wheel. As always, you you can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, on Twitter and at asleepatthewheel.com. And for the next two years as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. So this week, we're going to be talking about a couple of our favorite things that have happened this summer, Uh, some of them new, some of them new to us. And we want to get started, since this is X is for podcast, with what was your favorite book in the X line this summer? And so I'll get started. Jerry Dugan is just killing it on so many comics. Marauders continues to be so good. Uh, His new X-Men, his planet size, the way he stuck the landing on cable. But really, I have found myself drawn more and more to Excalibur, which is something that I, I didn't see coming. It was probably at the bottom of my rankings of the X books going into X of Swords until I went back and reread those first dozen issues or so, those first two arcs by Teeny. Uh, and reading them together instead of, you know, a month apart with so many books in between really helped kind of tie them and see those through lines she was running. And I had a much greater appreciation. And since X of Swords, I have just loved what she's doing with this book and the characterization and the storyline with the redemption of Malice was probably the high point for me. The final issue of that arc with uh, Betsy and Conan going back and and fighting to give Malice a new chance on Krakoa is probably my favorite issue we've had in all of the Hoxpox era, like the Dawn and Reign of X. 
And I, I just, I love what she's doing with that. The consistency that Marcus Toe is providing with the art has really built something special there. And what she's doing with these characters, the stories she's telling, it, it's just somehow become like my top of the pile book. Uh, it, it is something that I've, I've really kind of felt an affinity towards that somewhat wasn't expected because, you know, it, it felt like a little work to read early on in the early issues. But man, I have just loved Excalibur more than anything else in the line this summer. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's not my favorite book in the line, but I agree with everything you've said. I think that the first two arcs were like as someone who hasn't read previous Excalibur the first like I didn't know Otherworld was a thing you know and and or even that really that this part of X-Men was like a thing because I'd never really read Excalibur before so the first two arcs were there like confusing for me because I'm like I don't know anything about this I don't know where they're going what's happening or even like what the direction this story is going into but once you kind of get the gist of Axis Swords and like what's happening then the book kind of felt like a I was like oh okay now I get what's happening and then it kind of just it flew off from there for me I do have a couple issues with that book though in the like I really don't think it should be called Excalibur it should be called Captain Britain yeah Um, yeah absolutely I'm not not, I am not like saying that like and that's fine like we can have an next book called Captain Britain why not because we we do have that like that is that has been a book before it certainly is so like yeah and that's what I mean so I don't like I don't mind the book anymore and actually it's kind of become one of the more like it's gone up on my list since um it uh premiered but I think my favorite book would have to be X-Men even though it did have like some delays over the summer just because it's by Jonathan Hickman and he's my favorite writer. Yeah, my favorite X book now currently going on is Hellions, I would say, which is honestly a consistent favorite for me. Since Hellions came out, it has been the book I look forward to most every week. It has made me care about some characters that I never thought I would care about before, similarly to how X-Factor did at the outset of its run. And just seeing Grey Crow and, well, Grey Crow and everybody, but Grey Crow and uh, Wild Child's budding friendship has been an absolute like pleasure to me, uh, seeing his relationship develop with on getting more Alex Summers content has always been a blast and Sinister remains a a high point for enjoyability throughout the run. Nanny has become my absolute ride or die favorite. It's just it's a Nanny is literally the best. Nanny (laughs) Nanny is love. Nanny's life. It's very it's very good. (laughs) There are there is a large faction of people who are willing to ride by Nanny's side and go around in that creepy leggy egg ship with her. Yeah I I find it fantastic but I do want to give an honorable mention to Sword a book that has like the consistently best writing and art is just absolutely phenomenal is amazing but i think it will be a lot better as a series once it stops being a crossover every issue yes especially having picked up right the most recent issue of sword which i believe is number seven the last annihilation crossover and I'll tell you, so I'm a big A cover person. I know that we have so many people who love variants in the uh, (laughs) X's for podcast Slack. I am a huge A cover person. I love A covers and my LCS knows that. And so I was a little surprised when I I picked up my books last week and I had a uh, um, the B cover variant of Sword. And I was like, what the fuck are they doing? And so I went over to the wall to look. And now mind you, this was like Wednesday, I don't know, early afternoon-ish. 
right? So the book had only been out a couple hours and there was none left. There was, and I'm like, what happened? Did you guys get shorted on sword? Did you? <laughs> and I mean, because of the crossover and the tie-in, like it just got, they had so many late asks and people wanting to get in on it from Guardians and other things yeah. after FOC that like it just, it, it didn't even make it to the wall. Like everything that they had originally ordered in went out and I wound up getting a, a variant, which I can live with, but like it's not the big issue. It's a good variant. But yeah, like it's constantly, and I get the sales things and the tie-in with the greater galaxy um, and, you know, Al Ewing's other book. But I mean, Sword is one of those that at least right now, for me, I think it's more clever than good. I really like a lot of the ideas in it. I think a lot of the art is beautiful. Even if it hasn't had the most consistent art, it's had consistently good art. But I'm not totally like enjoying it. It's more like instead of laughing at a joke when you're like, oh, that's funny. Like I'm kind of there with it. And maybe Excalibur is a great kind of match for this to say that, you know what? Some of these books need time to really settle because like I wasn't as high on Excalibur at issue seven where Sword is at now as I am now at issue 22. And, you know, hopefully more of these books get time to settle because I like I'm still crestfallen over the fact that the book that just hit me in the feels from day one and never stopped didn't make it past 10 issues. Yeah, no disrespect to X Factor on this podcast because I love X Factor so much and it's always the best. Favorite title this summer, favorite thing you're reading that is not in the X line, right? Every now and again, we like to kind of branch off and give listeners an idea of some of the other stuff that we don't always talk about that we're reading. Well, I'm going to shotgun through a couple of quick ones because I'm reading a lot of really good stuff this summer, honestly. Let's see. I want to start with the first Marvel non-X thing that I'm reading this summer that's really good, and it's Guardians of the Galaxy. I am reading The Last Annihilation. It's fantastic. I caught up really quick. I got the trades. It's just amazing. It's just more Al Ewing goodness. I highly recommend it. As far as stuff that's not Marvel, but is superhero, Robin and Swamp Thing have been really eating up my time from DC. They are both incredible. They're, they're just fantastic, phenomenal comics. I care so much about da- little Damien. I care so much about this boy. And I've never met him before. I'm not a Batman reader. Uh, I've never been a Batman reader. But Damien Wayne has just pulled me in. Uh, Flatline is a delight. Ravager's really cool. Just a great series. And Swamp Thing has been just something, like the best it's been since the Alan Moore days of Swamp Thing, in my opinion. Robin is so fucking good. Yeah. I've been wanting to check out Swamp Thing since I, like, since I saw that it was going to be do. a thing. It's not, is it the future state? It's not future state. No, it's not future state. It is a new swamp thing, Levi Kame. And it is just, it's by Ram V. Please, please check it out. It is incredibly good. It is emotional. Mm -hmm. It is thoughtful. It is, it is focused on the idea of what you do with a bad idea, which is you create a better idea. So Ram, Ram V is, I I kind of put him in the Donny Cates world for me right now in terms of writers, which is to say that he's a writer that a lot of people are really high on, but he's really into characters that I am not really into into. And so, you know, writing all of these things that I'm not naturally picking up or getting an eye. So like, I've seen him on a lot of titles, and I haven't picked it up and didn't get what the hype was. And then he did a story in the Green Arrow 80th anniversary comic that despite the fact that it had all of these great Green Arrow writers and artists, pairs and teams from the past of all these runs that I love so much, like kind of diving back in and giving me little special moments that hit me in the feels with those characters. The look ahead Rom V1 was probably the best one in the book. It was just phenomenal. And now I really want Bendis to let go of this character so Rom V can write the next Green Arrow 
ongoing. Yeah, that would be so. Um, that would be amazing, and you know it would be because he doesn't he doesn't really miss. I mean, I my last recommendation, honestly, outside of the big two, is another Rom V book, The Many Deaths of Layla Star. Absolutely hits me in the feels every time. I've cried over two separate inanimate objects while reading this story. It's just been it's been phenomenal. Um, and yeah, between that and like Hollow Heart, which I've also been reading and is also just very touching. That's it's just been a lot of good stuff this, this summer. I'll double back and want to touch in on the Robin real quick because Robin is so fucking good. It's so good. Robin is Josh Williamson, who Josh Williamson did a really long run on The Flash that I was the opposite of high on from start to finish. And a big part of that is just that I think Barry Allen as a character works better dead than alive. I, it's very difficult to get me in on Barry Allen books. And then on top of it, when you start, I'm, I'm very down on spectrums, which is to say that, you know, what Jeff Johns did in Green Lantern and turning it into, you know, there's a spectrum of these, not just one was fantastic. But we've now seen that as a trope over and over. And so making the Speed Force one of a spectrum of seven forces with the slow force and the safety yeah, that did not also do for me yeah nope uh somebody has to stop so, jeff johns actually <laughs> so i was not big on on that but then i read josh williamson's future state justice league and my it god good. it was the dc comics book that i have been waiting a decade for like i don't know that there is something that had me as excited and wanting more dc comics as those two issues did since 2011. And yeah, so it, it's made me want to get more. And, and his run on Robin has been kind of a, a continuation yeah. of that promise. And I've, I've loved the first four issues of that book as well. How, how great is Gleb Meldikov on that too? I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, but like Flatline's whole character design is, I like, I want to wear it as well as I want to look at it. It's absolutely fantastic. So and, fun. And 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 as a, a lifelong Green Arrow fan, like as a huge top of the line green arrow fan the reemergence of connor hawk does so much for me drusifer what are what are your picks for non-x line books of the summer yeah so both of mine are marvel because i'm a marvel stan so my first one is probably one that everyone is reading because it's probably like one of the more popular books next to like the x-men line and that's Daredevil um, by Chip Zdarsky, um, fellow Canadian. So that's actually one of the reasons why I pick it up is because I, like, I usually pick up books based on two reasons. That's either character or writer. Um, I picked this up because of the writer. My brother is also a huge Daredevil fan. And um, and I've heard like, you know, you know, people always say there isn't really a bad Daredevil run. Um, and my boyfriend actually was re- was reading this. <laughs> They're all pretty good. Well, well, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so the, I um, the comparatively down ones are like it's like and again it's I'm like Stan, it's like it's Stanley you know that's like it's, it it's, it's, it's like sexy yeah, even when they're bad they're still pretty good yeah <laughs> exactly yes um but yeah I just uh really loved this series it's like it's very consistent and like uh whereas with X Men kind of seems like it jumps around like jumps around a little bit and there's like stuff that happens in between um, issues and like it feels very like length this is very beat after beat after beat so like one issue takes place literally right after the next issue so it reads very well as like 
a, like a trade because that's how I read the first 20 or so issues. Like I caught up and now I've just been subscribed to it. It's a phenomenal slow burn. Um, it is, I, yes. I am not a big Daredevil person and I got into this run about six, eight months back. And, you know, Chip relies heavily on the artist to convey a lot of the like, and, and, and it's not to say that the artist is doing all the work. Like this is the way Chip is laying this out. I mean, these are characters who don't talk a lot. This isn't dead, mm -hmm. right? And so much in the tone, the colors, the pacing, you know, the, the way that it's laid out visually. It's a very visual book and it, it's gorgeous and nails the characters through the way the dialogue and the facial expressions and the body language. It's it's a you know, it's it's like a more of like an in the bedroom book. It's a slow kind of you love the cat, you know. Yeah, I, I am not a daredevil person. And it has me like this is the first one that has me really raving about daredevil in a long And then time. my second one is actually it's the Beta Ray Bill miniseries. Um, so basically it's, he's, he's out to find his hammer and he's like going to hell to get it and he, with his ship and they kind of have like a really weird, uh, relationship together. And it's just like a cute story of him trying to get his hammer back. And it's just, I, I think it's super cute. It's by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. So, uh, that's another one I highly recommend. The art is also very, like, I like the art a lot. And the lettering is really cool too. Like they're very outlined and color, like the colors, all of the art. Like the the lettering is kind of like colored in the art, and it's not Who's really the like the letterer what we on that title. The letterer, let's give them their credit, is uh, VCs Joe Sabino with Johnson. So yeah, those are my two picks for the summer. Very cool. Very cool. Oh, you know what? I forgot to, I, I know that we're just throwing comics at the wall here, but I forgot to mention Gamma Flight and I should have because it's been really, really good. It's only on the second issue, but it has been astonishing so far. You guys reading that? I am not. Robin is another one up there. I love Robin. The two I wanted to talk about were Jeremy Adams' new run on The Flash with art by David LaFuente, Brandon Peterson. And this is one that, so I kind of said some things about The Flash, you know, when talking about Josh Williamson earlier. I am a huge Wally West as The Flash. I'm okay with lots of other people being The Flash. Basically, for me, Flash comes down to the Mark Wade era. The Mark Wade era is the defining gold standard, can't be topped era of The Flash. And it's not just for for what he did in those stories and not just how he expanded the flash family during that run mark wade laid out a legacy of the flash for over a thousand years that was so just breathtaking and fantastic with so many compelling characters you know so that way when the iris west flash popped up in kingdom come like it tied in and felt true to that legacy you know it, it brought in bart allen and and everyone in between there it, it had this huge legacy that you know played back to all the time travels of the the silver age and classic um barry allen stories of the flash it had barry allen as this larger than life legacy character that everyone else was trying to live up to not a character having modern drama and relationship but like Barry Allen works best as this ideal that all the other Flashes are trying to stand up to, in my opinion, because, and I think this is one of the things that Mark Wade kind of figured out was Barry Allen was a pretty boring character. 
right? And trying to make him interesting by giving him drama or problems only kind of waters down what was great and beloved by that because he was a great Silver Age character that just doesn't translate as well, which is why he stayed dead for so long after Crisis. And so Jeff Johns kind of forcing him back and giving it over, like that was the period where I lost Flash. Like I, I literally have every single issue of every run of the Flash from, I actually don't even want to say Crisis on Infinite Earths because I have the full trial of the Flash and the final about 15 issues of the Silver Age Barry Allen run as well, leading into Crisis, then Crisis on Infinite Earths, everything from there forward until through Flash Rebirth by Jeff Johns. And then he did about 11, 12 issues before Flashpoint. And then we started having Flashpoint Flash and then, you know, New 52 and the Josh Williamson Rebirth. And every time we get a new one, I pick every time we get a new writer on Flash, I pick it up and check it out. And it's just not for me. And I did the same thing with this new Jeremy Adams run. And so I picked up the first issue and it was about Barry Allen and Wally West kind of, you know, like who's going to be the Flash and, you know, they both kind of want to retire. And then Wally West disappears at the end. And I was like, I, right, you know what, this is another one that's not for me. And that was issue 768. So then about three issues later, I saw like there was you know, an issue with Wally on the cover and it was about Impulse and this other stuff. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck? What the fuck's going on? Wait, what, what, what's going on? And I picked it up and I found out that no, no, no. When Wally disappeared at the end, it became Wally's story through time becoming the new Flash and, and totally bouncing back and forth through the entire thousand years of the Flash legacy that Mark Wade created and paying true to all of this in the most amazing way. And I was like, fuck, I can't believe that I didn't pick it up. So I went back and got all the other issues and have absolutely loved Jeremy Adams' The Flash, um, which is just about finished wrapping up its first arc now titled Blink of an Eye and is everything that I have wanted from a Flash book for the last 20 years. I love Infinite Frontier, like what Infinite Frontier is doing for DC Comics, allowing writers to just go in and and just cherry pick the best to give us these fantastic stories that it felt like and characters that we've been missing for so long as they've been trying to force continuity crunch on DC since New 52. This just expansion and free for all has been so creatively rewarding along titles like you said, like, you know, with what we're getting in Robin, with what we're getting, you know, the things that they can do in Swamp Thing and Wonder Woman and Flash in Justice League. It's been so great. And so I am loving this airing scene. And right now, I don't think I'm higher on anything other than The Flash. Um, my second title is one that's just about coming to an end. It's got two issues left. It's a 20 issue maxi series by Image Comics. It's Kieran Gillen with Amazeballs, phenomenal fucking art by Stephanie Hans and probably some of the best letters in the business by VCs Clayton Cowles. And that is Die. That is Kieran Gillen's super meta love ode to RPG games that has just been visually breathtaking and so incredibly compelling while it's it's the type of book that not only do you need to read every issue but you need to read the essays that he writes and then go on to his blog and there is so much in so much thought into every panel every issue every connection and like any Kieran Gillen book it's got a lot to say and a, a tremendous amount of representation on the fluidity of gender and sexuality and and I think you know for a lot of people how role-playing games and RPGs give us an opportunity to kind of safely dip your toes into being someone else that you're not sure what the response will be in real life. And man, it is... 
it, it is everything I love. And I am simultaneously like can't wait for the final two issues and going to be heartbroken when it's over, but then also want the super deluxe all in one hardcover that'll inevitably come out afterwards. And it's it, it's one of those books that, you know, I, I put it up there with like, say, Bitch Planet and Sex Criminals in terms of that, like, you should probably have already bought about three of the volume one trades of these to give to people as gifts who don't read comics because like these are the it's just so good. So die need a shout out for die major back issues that you've read recently, right? So stories because the x continuity has been such and this is going to be x specific, but the x continuity is so deep and rich. And there is so much to pull from I know all of us are constantly going back and reading additional things as well to help you know either things that we missed or supplement you know maybe 20 years ago like that miniseries like didn't mean shit but now some writer on the x line has decided to build a whole new series based on a minor character from it and so you gotta super dive in and find it stuff like that so uh favorite uh back issues or back reads what have you been digging into this summer so this is pretty much all, all i've been doing all year because i've been i came on this podcast in january and like i thought i knew the x-men and then i was like i think i need to polish up a little more of my x-men <laughs> so like most people on x twitter i got the inferno omnibus so i've been reading all of Inferno. Um, I actually finished it last week, like all of the tie-ins and everything. That's an incredible accomplishment because Inferno, Inferno, correct me if I'm wrong, right? It's like 342 issues long. Uh, it's a very large omnibus and the omnibus I don't even think yeah, has I don't almost, think it has everything it's, in it. It's 1,200 pages um, and this one It has, is so much fucking content. Yeah, it's a brick. She it's is a cinder block. Thick, thick with five C's and like these are all you guys can't see, but these are all the issues in, in it. That's all the fish. That's um, all the issues that could fit on the back cover. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, can fit on the back cover. It took me two months, but I liked it a lot. And I started with X Factor number one and kind of went through that line. And, you know, if there was, I was waiting for my omnibus to come in. So I read Excalibur a little bit. I read some Wolverine, the 89 run, uh, Chris Claremont. Um, and then we interviewed Mike Carey. So I've been finishing up his run, Age of X, and I'm almost done like the aftermath and the post David Age of X stuff when they're trying to find Phoenix and uh, Lorna and Havoc in the Shear space. Yeah, the the Mike Carey one is for me was a much more enjoyable read when I when I dove back into that over the last few years. The Inferno was work to get through for me. I am in the I know there's people people are very divided on Inferno. Either you love it and you think it's seminal and the most important, or you're just like, man, that thing is overrated. And I tend to be in the later camp. It has created so many great things afterwards, but just in terms of actually reading it, like it is so. But I liked it a lot. It was probably one of my more favorite tie-ins and like big events. The tie-ins though, some of them were not my favorite. I'm not a huge Power Pack fan. So the Power Pack, a couple tie-ins were kind of rough for me. And then a lot like with the tie-ins too, that's kind of interesting is that they don't even really tie into the story. They just kind of happen when the story is happening. And it's like, well, the X or like demons are coming in because of the X-Men. Everyone else lives in New York. So 
everyone else is fighting demons too. Like it has nothing to do with like the X-Men or Madeline or magic at all. It's just them fighting demons. I think in the Avengers ones, they don't even really do that. It's not, it's like a demon is in it. So they put it in there. <laughs> the The main X-Men X-Factor story has about four really tight issues when the two groups come together and everything culminates. But oh my God, the lead up and the run, like there's gotta be at least three to four issues in each title before the two groups get together Mm -hmm. and then you have the new mutants which is very good you have exterminators which is good but has a lot of redundancy like new mutants and exterminators if it was published today should have been written as like one crossover not two separate issues like retelling a lot of the same and then you have the tie-ins and then you have like prelude and aftermath and then you like it's like there's a solid 12 issues in there but for me it's just spread out over like i I joked about 300 some issues but it's spread out over honestly and legitimately 20 some issues it's an edifice it is an edifice it's 20 it's 21 issues of x factor exterminator x-men and new mutes yeah just those before you get into the tie-in so that's just 21 that and then yeah there's could have been 12 for me the spider-man tie-in i think there's there's more Spider-Man issues than there are some like New Mutants issues. So. <laughs> well, because it turned New York upside down, which was a cool thing. And a lot of people played into like the fun art style on it. But yeah, those are not as important for the story. But if you're trying to read everything, it just it for me, it felt like a labor, which takes away from some of the highs because there are highs. Don't get me wrong. Like there it's it's. It's a very important crossover to have read. It's it's the base. It's It's been drawn from in so many stories for the past 30, 40 years since then. So. How about you, Steve? What are you, what were you digging into this summer? I reread Inferno as well at one point this summer. I do often. I really like Inferno. I've been on record as saying X of Swords to the Ten of Swords is my favorite X-Men crossover since Inferno. It's extremely good. And I, I also reread that this summer but the main thing i've been working through was i I reread watchmen because i'm trying to read doomsday clock and it's all feeling like a mistake (laughs) it's all feeling like a mistake at this point but that's because speaking of speaking of you know major events that feel like labor to get through yeah it feels i'm seven issues into doomsday doomsday clock and it's it's been quite a labor that's for sure the mime is attractive that's my takeaway so far. I'm seven issues in. The mime, pretty hot. So I didn't come into this with things that I felt were laborious. And, and, and it's not to say like, yo, there are people who love everything. And it's it's not to say that it's bad, right? I'm making point. For, for me, these were ones that, you know, definitely were some work to get through. Of course. Um, yeah. For me, uh, I think one of my favorites that I, I went back through is I ordered and got the ultimate editions of the Mystique ongoing. The first 13 issues were by Brian K. Vaughn, which is a, uh, you know, rarely miss i mean those you know you're in for some good comic there and then the next nine issues were by sean mckeever which played very true it, it was really mckeever's kind of attempt to wrap up brian k Vaughn's story and i don't know how much or if they work together at all on that I'd, I'd love to know kind of like the inside baseball on that because it really was he did not establish anything new he just kind of took it in the rest of the way to what he felt was the natural conclusion the character 
characterization started feeling off from how good they were in the first one. It did not finish as strong as it started. But man, just good Mystique. I, I love Mystique. I, I, I'm on record in our um, Discord as saying that we're going to be fed some phenomenal Mystique in the coming months in Trial of Magneto. I, I love good Mystique. I love Shannon McGuire's uh, X-Men Black Mystique as well. You know, going back, the, the Mystique solo spotlight issues in Claremont's Uncanny are some of my favorite. I think 177 is one of them, uh, where she pairs up with Arcade and, and has him put her through the simulation of trying to take down all the X-Men with a beautiful JRJR art back when people had faces that looked like faces in his books. <laughs> yeah. I'm big on Mystique and I'm glad I got that opportunity. The other one, and this is one I just read the other day and was ranting about, raving about in, in our chat, is X-Men Volume 2, Number 6, which is one of the Jim Lee runs, right? So Jim Lee run on X-Men Number 2 really kind of ran, like we think of it as like his big X-Men Number 1, and it went through 11. And we know that these are ones that he wasn't the writer or the scripter, but he was the plotter. So he basically drew, he plotted out and planned and laid out and drew the whole thing and then gave notes to the scripters and they filled in the dialogue. And I think X, this issue is probably my favorite and whether it's the most important or just most of his 11 issues, it has so much going on in it. It has uh, callbacks and uh, returns of characters from Acts of Vengeance with Psylocke and Wolverine. It brings back Maverick and Sabretooth and goes into um, Logan's CIA time with flashbacks into the three of them. It has Omega Red still coming from his origin an issue or two earlier. It has, you know, your major 90s X-Men. It has diversions into Mojoverse with Longshot Dazzler and Lila Cheney. There is so much happening and so many beats in this. And yet it's still a really kind of tight chapter in this story he's telling right in the middle of his 11 issues. So we're really talking about like build up from the beginning before he starts kind of running downhill to the end. You know, the last two issues, obviously he's wrapped up everything else and is finishing with Mojoverse. And so this is where kind of everything's there at once with just that classic Jim Lee X-Men art. I loved it. Like I opened it and I forgot that like this is kind of that pinnacle of that run which you know in a lot of ways is kind of like lacking substance like I think most of those stories we tend to think of as fun or we love the way they look not as like seminal character beats or moments yeah good stuff good stuff all right next up let's go back to the modern x line the reign of x and let me ask you which character do you want to see more from between now and the next hellfire gala we do know that we're going to be getting an annual hellfire gala hopefully it doesn't take over the whole month hopefully we get like a nice big kind of oversized annual moving forward but we are going to be having this this yearly event now so between now and then which x characters do you want to see kind of step up and shine a little more so mine's not really a character mine's mine's more of a group and that's a uh, generation x and we were talking about this in the green room where like all of the characters basically like chamber what happened to chamber where is he where is my sad boy and when are we getting a story about him wanting to be resurrected and have a face back so he can finally kiss husk where like, is it i've been waiting 30 fucking years for this story god damn it and we were, talking, we were talking in the green room about 
there isn't even any Generation X trades or uh, collections coming out. Like, it's just the Generation X train is not running, and I'm not really here for it. If you don't have all 75 issues on floppy, like I do, it's very hard to read. They are not all available on Marvel Unlimited. They are not, I believe, all even available on Comixology. They have not done any major reprints of them. They finally, very recently, just did an ultimate edition of, was it the first 12 issues? First 10, 12 issues? Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. The numbers on that are good enough that they continue and we actually get a collection, a full 75 issue run in trade for once. But there is so much good stuff. And for me, and we're going to talk a lot about this in an upcoming episode of X's for Podcast, where we have a writer from the OG Gen X series come back to talk 90s Marvel X-Men inside baseball and those characters I fucking love so much with us. But for me, some of my favorite moments from this are when we get into the 40s and 50s, which are some of the least reprinted and hardest to get a hold of issues for fans to read. And there is so much great stuff in there. Yeah, I've been wanting to get into more Generation X, but and I don't I don't read really through Comixology or Marvel Unlimited just because I I read through trade or physical like physical and I can't find any Generation X anywhere. It's because they don't print it. Yeah. But they're starting to hopefully. I'd like to see M Plate more, honestly. He was somebody I really fucking love from Generation X. I've always been a big M Plate fan. Just a scary villain. Uh, really cool, awesome design. I always loved it. Um, when you said a team that kind of brought it to the forefront of my mind of what I really want, because like there are individual mutants that I want to see more of in this next year. I want to see more of Isco the Unbeaten. I want to see more of Korra. I want to see Elisa Tager. I want to see Cypher from Young X-Men reappear, so to speak. I really want to see Jesse Drake on the island. And that mm. that that leads to what I really want to see more of, is I want to see more of the development of Vida Ayala's uh, non-binary and trans kids that we saw show up just recently in New Mutants number 20 and in Prisoner X. I want to see them show up on page over and over in other X books under other writers. I want them to become a bigger part of the cast. I want to learn more about Leo and Brother Nature and all the other characters that have been introduced from Prisoner X. I want to see them again. That's a great point. And I, I, there is no one, definitely no one in the X's for podcast team and maybe no one else on earth who will be as excited that everyone here wanted to talk about Generation X. If I had known that this is where you all were going to go for me, I would have worn my Generation X t-shirts. And and M-Plate should totally be here, not just because, you know, he's a cool design and character. He is one of those just batshit only Chris Boccolo could design him characters. But because... We got more M-Plate development in the, you know, those the dark period of, you know, X-Men comics not being the best the last few years, you know, the post-Secret Wars, pre-Hoxpox, than we did ever, 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 even during Gen X. I mean, what we got from Cullen Bunn's Uncanny X-Men in terms of, you know, what it did to Monet, and then following that up with Christina Strange Generation X Volume 2, has put us in a place where this is a character that should be on the forefront 
forefront of ones whose unique needs are being addressed and how he survives and lives in the new Krakoan era. Similar to the way that, you know, it was brought up with Omega Red in the pages of Ben Percy's Wolverine. And so, you know, M has been getting featured a lot. We've seen her pop in and out of a number of issues. She's a star of her own series now in X-Core. How M Plate is not brought up, I don't know. I will add to that because, you know, my favorite, the character I'm always asking for more of being Husk. I love Paige Guthrie. I want more Paige Guthrie. I never have enough. And uh, another one too, and I've been so happy to see him in little bits and pieces is Japheth, my, my boy Maggot and Eni and Meanie, who've been popping up lately and playing a, a good solid role here, kind of in the background. I love the kind of little cleanup team that we're getting with Maggot and Magma. And I think there's one other person in that that's going out. We've seen him in Children of X. We've seen him in a, or Children of the Atom. We've seen him in another book. And those are just some great characters that I, I would love to see kind of more of. And hopefully, you know, Maggot gets a spot on something, you know, these and tying into Gen X, he was a member of Generation X for one whole issue back in the 90s. So he he, he counts. Yes, he counts. I agree. X-Men and Generation X member. Yes. Of, of one, one and, issue and, each, maybe. Maybe two in X-Men. I'm and, not sure. And it's a great thing. You know, I always love more Dazzler and Longshot. I would love to see. I really thought we were going to get some Dazzler and Shatterstar stuff at the end of X-Factor, and we didn't. I really want some Dazzler and Shatterstar stuff. Like, I would like meaningful Dazzler. We have been teased with so many little glimpses of Dazzler. Um, I'm really hoping we start to get some meaningful Dazzler in the pages of Way of X. It seems that... There's some really, really cool potential there with Dr. Nemesis. And honestly, like this is where I really want to see the Dazzler Shatterstar stuff come up because I feel like since he has no care about like feelings or filter for what the fuck he says, like I just want a panel where like he looks at her and says something about like, you know, based on this, this or that, like clearly like you've had a child and sometime around, you know, like, you know, this many years ago and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, what? I had a child? Because she's been brainwiped from it and doesn't know that she had a child and is actually fucking Shatterstar. And who better to make that revelation and bring it to her attention and kickstart that story than Dr. Fucking Nemesis? Where all the books are in the current place and time in the reign of X post Hellfire Gala, what is your current major X ship? Does it have to be a ship that is currently getting action or can it just be a ship that you are really into at this moment? Yeah, give me a ship that you're really into. At this Juggernaut point. and Black Tom. Best ship ever. Case closed. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I, that is a good my one. My favorite Hellfire Gala ship is, is going to still be the interactions between Magneto and Eric. Uh, Cherik is always a important part of my soul, important part of my heart. Those two old bastards love each other so fucking much. But Juggernaut and Tom. Yeah, best ship. I'm here. So I am here for the Gene Scott Logan, Emma, Polycule, <laughs> more of that and more like a more variety. You know what I mean? Like let's, we've seen it. Like, I think we've seen the most out of Gene and Logan, but like, let's get some, let's mix it up a little bit. <laughs> like um, let's get some more Scott and Emma. Let's get maybe some Scott and, Wolver- and Logan. Yeah. Scott and Logan maybe. would be great. Let's pull Solemn in there. Yeah. Wolverine and Solemn. Yeah. Wolverine <laughs> and Solemn and Scott. <laughs> and Scott. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I just... I, I just like like play around with that I think a lot of people are like arguing that it's like queer baiting and blah 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 but I kind of I don't really see it as queer baiting as opposed to like that's 
just like one of the techniques that Hickman uses as like this, like he doesn't use it in just sexuality, he uses it in his plot devices too. So it's just, it is queer baiting, but it's... The other thing is, is that that's clearly a polycule with hinges, right? Like they are not all connected to each other, right? Scott and Jean are hinges for other relationships in there. And, you know, so while we've gotten little skirts of what that might have done to the relationship of Emma and Jean not being adversarial anymore, what it may have done to the relationship of Scott and Logan. I don't think like, I don't think it's the type of relationship where like Scott and Logan are sneaking off for bro jobs. Like I, I, I think that they're, it's very much based around the hinges, the emotional hinges in it. Um, But it is cool that we do like, I do like that we are seeing a different relationship from them as a result. Um, So I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about if we got like just a scene where like, you know, Logan's X-Force radio goes off and he gets up and it's just him and Scott in bed. Yeah, Um, I I would like that. It's it seems healthier in general to have it as what it is now than a a horrible love triangle. But I would also enjoy some trio action. (laughs) Yeah, it's the the horrible love triangle is tired. Yeah. Polycule is weird. Solve the problem. Just just be okay with it. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, I know that I'm a huge Valkyrie stan and a huge Jane stan, but this next segment is awesome. It's really been great seeing this interpretation of the success of Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie from the Thor and Avengers movies play back into comics and this amazing new character, Runa, and the ongoing narrative for Jane Foster, everything getting us ready for Love and Thunder. It's just really exciting as a Thor fan. And, you know, Danny Moonstar could still pop up any day, fingers crossed. Until then, check out this next segment. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, it's Nathan, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike more did, impaled by Craven in not the fun kind of way. No. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think emos and barely burly daddies, you know, that's, that's, it's usually a more fun kind of rough play than that. And instead, I think we can say now more is officially no more. Uh, He's no uh, more. Also, we don't really use the term emo anymore. We use Tumblr sexy man. Tumblr sexy. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. I also thought I heard you say emu. So we now just call <laughs> emus Tumblr sexy. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the great emu war was a really big deal. Yeah. Well, of course it was. And, you know, from emus to Mr. Horses, we're here to talk about the Mighty Valkyries number four, which I cannot stop enjoying. Gets a Marvel Legacy number of 18 at this point. I had to check because it almost seems impossible that this has a Marvel Legacy number. We're giving series 18 issues in Legacy numbers. I don't know if I love it because it's kind of tongue in cheek. Look at all of our modern Marvels. Or if I love it because it's sort of like Valkyrie Matters, fucking deal with it, right? But whichever role it's playing, I do love that it gets a legacy number. I think it's a little exciting. But here we are talking about the Mighty Valkyries number four or 18 (laughs) by the team of Jason Aaron and Torn Grunbeck with art by Matea de Iluis. And then we have the Runa story, whose writer was just Torin Grunbeck, who I would love to have on just so he could tell us how bad we are at pronouncing these titles, right? The artist is Erica de Urso, who we as a team 
are like clinically obsessed with as an artist and uh, her colorist is the incredible Marcio Menez, right? And there are a ton of additional people on this title, a number of variant cover artists. But of course, I just want to put it out there for the amazing lettering of VC's Joe Sabino. The lettering on this book does a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of heavy lifting. And I think I want to start with my snide little comment about legacy numbers, guys. How do you guys feel about this book having such an impressive, identity that they're already giving it a legacy number like saying chain these minis together i think it's great that they want to put that emphasis on the characters i think it's great that they want to make jane important that they want to lift runa up to that level i think to have a legacy numbering at 18 is sort of ridiculous it's like okay come on like come on guys so, like, I'm guessing that takes the Valkyrie series, the Return of the Valkyries, and the Mighty Valkyries and squishes them all into the same thing. Which, I mean, makes sense. They're all basically oh, the same. Oh, and Valkyrie. Oh, Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jane yeah. Foster yeah, Valkyrie, yeah, Jane which Foster ran Valkyrie, 10 yeah. issues. So they're yeah. kind of chaining this all to Valkyrie. So, I mean, it's cool to, like, know there have been 18 stories of Jane Foster's Valkyrie. But, like, is it really necessary for 18? Can we count on our own? Could we have waited till 25? Yeah, that had been a better, cooler number. Now, Jonah, what do you think? You've been a little silent weighing in on this legacy number debate that myself and Josh constantly bring up for no reason like it adds anything to the discussion at all. <laughs> I'm talking about the essentially the way you put it in a filing cabinet and <laughs> we're so heated about it. How do you, as somebody who has no actual I got so emotional, I fucked up my headset. Uh, How do you, as someone who really wasn't a part of the legacy issues that we are so obsessed getting their due to. How does it feel that you see something like that? Is that just more confusing than it is helpful? A little more confusing than it is helpful for me. More so in the sense that... I don't know if it really adds anything for me in sense though, in the sense of, well, it's just a legacy number. Like the number itself doesn't mean anything. I think the more important thing is that they're trying to say like, Hey, these are all connected. So if you're reading this, maybe you should go back and read this. Maybe you should Mm -hmm. go and read this in the future. And that part is absolutely fine. Especially when this kind of is the exact same story continued just with a different title. See cable and then cable. Is it reloaded? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So like it, it's absolutely fine to connect everything. I just don't know if the legacy number has any bearing on anything, actually. Also, much as I like the number 18, it's just a weird number. Like, it's a weird, like, usual standard numbers you, like are, like, good ones for anything. Is like, you ended a zero or a five. Like, when you're turning up the volume on something. Yeah. On, like, a TV. And I... Th- I'm with you on that, right? There's things that, like, I want certain things in in, in multiples of four and certain things in multiples (laughs) of three. I think the legacy numbers have been on the covers since 16. Mm -hmm. might have been 15. I like the idea that they're chaining these stories together, but I almost feel, and I understand that I keep making these grand pronouncements for Marvel editorial that these editors who are underpaid, underappreciated, underrepresented, and underserved in the community... You know, I make all of these grand pronouncements about what they should be doing with all of that. But perhaps Marvel could find room to pay someone to chain together those Marvel legacy cards that said what built the legacy numbering that came out a number of years ago. Maybe keep them a little bit more up to date, have a QR code and just boop and you can get that legacy Mm -hmm. checklist. All of a sudden, you have the legacy checklist, you know what you can read, you can go back, and if we're doing this in a digital world where we're talking about using a smartphone, 
to just boop down and get your stuff, then you would be able to click on a link to Comixology to buy the issues. And I feel like we are at a point where things like legacy numbering should have a value. Just kind of pasting a number up there for me actually was kind of confusing because I did have to say to myself, well, what are the, I've read everything Jane for my lifetime. Like what the (laughs) hell issues is this? Okay. So it's the 10 Valkyrie. Then it's the return of the Valkyries, which is okay. Then it was the, it's the mighty Valkyries. And it's that other Valkyrie series that we just read. (laughs) Like It's so much. And I am excited to know where we're going. Because something I have been noticing a bit more on the subject of where the book has been and where the book is headed is that Jason Aaron's part has been in many ways consistent throughout. Jason has written with Al Ewing on the title and he's written now with Torn Grunbeck and he's covered so much ground in this universe. But I feel as though perhaps, not that his interest is waning, even if, and if it were, he's been on Thor since like 2013, who could blame him for, for losing a little interest? But I feel as though I see Aaron kind of pulling back and perhaps mm. handing the title to Torn Grunbuck in some ways. I don't feel that necessarily Aaron's design isn't all over it, because it is. But I do feel like the Runa story, which deserves the amount of time it's getting, is starting to maybe overwhelm the Jane story in a lot of ways. Does anybody else feel like perhaps this is a point of transition for not just these characters, but maybe the title itself? Because it's starting to feel to me like it's going somewhere different, and I'm into it. But it's noticeable. Um, the, the thing that would that worries me with this is if the last issue, if the Jane story has to go mainly to Asgard, where as in this issue they set up Runa's story to mainly be the Asgard proper story, and you know, whereas before it was her going to these cool planets. Like, yeah, I think that the Runa story storyline and type of art might overtake actual Jane story. In it. For me, I think the problem stems from they're very isolated in the two stories they're trying to tell. Runa and Jane are operating under different missions and doing different things. I've also found that when they're in panels together and they are interacting, there isn't too much chemistry. And I kind of get that in the sense that they don't really know each other. They're not really supposed to be best buddies. They're not besties yet. But they are both Valkyries. And that is a very bonding experience that anyone should go through that I think should warrant a little more friendliness and camaraderie where they understand where the other one is coming from because they've both gone through the exact same thing they are the same thing they're both valkyries so it's just something that i've noticed that i think is where the problem lies where you have these two characters competing for the main character of this title and they're running on different stories where one might get something a little more interesting and i really agree with everything you're saying there that they felt like they were on very different paths and then there was kind of a a sort of you know for something that's supposed to be a sisterhood something that's so sororal I didn't feel a lot of sisterhood between them. And I apologize that while you guys were speaking, it probably looked like I was turning into a ghost repeatedly. I was preparing some notes for this episode about some of the references. And I am excited to just share a little bit with you guys about some of what I think is leading to the disconnect. And again, I am so sorry that I am transporting through the rainbow bridge as we speak. But Carol Ann, right? So Yarnborn is a huge topic of debate in this series. 
sort of the fact that it is Rona's and Thor is like, who's this lady? She's got my axe and she didn't even ask, but it's cool, but she's got it. And, you know, Yarnborn has been a very uh, important item for a while. It's been Thor's kind of go-to weapon during his periods of unworthiness. He wielded it during most of the Jane Thor run. So it it's kind of become a weapon that was really synonymous with him visually. And it's, it's a strong, powerful axe. It's kind of close to the Stormbreaker that we've been seeing in a number of properties, but it really is its own thing. And it's one of Jason Aaron's creations. He used it a bit in Uncanny Avengers. So it's made the rounds. It's what he was wielding when he appeared in Jean Grey for a little bit of X-Men tie-in. And this weapon is, once again, a thing that perhaps pulls us out of the current narrative that I think is part of why Valkyries maybe isn't sitting with everyone that doesn't have all of the Aaron Thor background. Now, Thor talks about being like God of the Gods again, and he we know he's like in Donny Cates' run. We know he's like looking like Fabio flying through the sky in some Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation gear, and he's Thor now instead of the guy wielding Yarnborn. Did it feel a little bit difficult to step back into a very specific identity of Thor in time? We're 12 issues into Donny Cates' series, if not more. So did you guys feel like the idea of where this book is coming from is still relevant? Or is it perhaps like Yarnborn feeling a little bit from a, I mean, Yarnborn is my favorite Thor weapon, but <laughs> does it feel perhaps a little bit like it's a thing from a previous run that's just kind of resurfacing? For me personally, there isn't too much in that shift of identities for me because I haven't read a lot of Thor. So if you give me a Thor, I just understand it as, okay, that's just Thor. I don't know a lot of him as the son of Odin and being not all father. As of right now, this is probably the most Thor I've ever read, except for that time where he was in, I want to say he was in Contest of Champions. Or Secret Wars. Wars. Secret Wars. That's like the extent of how much I actually know about comic book Thor. So it's not too much for me to really buy into Thor's role as the all father and Sif being his, uh, Heimdall of the Gatekeeper. Are do you hold the key? I'm don't. I don't know why I was thinking of Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters, but like that's where my brain went. There's never a bad time to reference Sigourney. No, Weaver. never. <laughs> no, never. For me, it's not. It's not. There isn't too much of a shift for me, and I also don't mind it because this book was never meant to be about Thor. Yes, it's an Asgardian title, but I really don't expect to see a lot of Thor in this, or at least I hope not. Only because. This isn't his story, and he's not really needed. He's a cool character, and obviously, I saw a tweet once where someone said, Thor might not be your favorite, but he's everybody loves him. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Kind of really, yeah. There really isn't too much to dislike about Thor. I think he's just a very, he's a very wholesome himbo bro. He's the leader of the frat that's actually like the most respectable frat at the university. <laughs> they do actually a lot of charity work. They're really open to like all of their LGBTQIA members. They're really accepting. They host plenty of benefits and they don't sexualize women. Yeah, sometimes. When they don't okay. want to be. Oh, okay. That so, is a good point. Yeah, that's, you know, I like yeah. the idea that Thor is always kind of a likable guy in a lot of ways because he can kind of suck, but he's hard to hate. I really get that. Now, Nathan, I know you've always had interest in reading more of the Aaron run, but you maybe haven't had a chance to. Does this jibe with what you thought would be the identity of the Aaron run? Or in some ways, are you still maybe missing some of the context? I haven't gone back and filled all the gaps in. It, it jives very well with what I have read, which is mainly just like the Jane stuff. So that, that characterization does jive. I've been reading the Kate stuff now as it's been going on. And yet the characterization really doesn't jive as well, but Kate's 
in that last issue kind of wrote in something which kind of like does a fix-all for all of it. I love Thor's protectiveness over the axe because in that way, thinking of it from that term, he didn't remember that Runa was the original owner. He probably didn't even think that anybody else besides him had Yarnborn before. So like for Runa to be like, no, this is my axe. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is mine. Like, no, not yours. You just borrowed it for a hot minute. Really jives well. And I like that she's even like, oh, and he was kind enough to use it well in the time and, you know, God blood stain it and stuff. And it was, you know, we, we knew that it was forged by dwarves and we knew that it was in the Asgardian armory. That's what we knew of it. And it is a thing that came into being in recent years. But there were some references to some things that came out a much longer time ago. So one of the things that helps distinguish the era of Runa the Valkyrie from, you know, Runhilda or from Jane is Runa clarifies she served under Bor Borison, which is Odin's father, right? And the joke is always, if you think Odin's tough on Thor, you should have seen Bor on Odin. And I wanted to do a little research because I, like many people, know Bor best from JMS's Thor, issues 7 and 12 from May 2008 and January 2009. I was curious if Bor had appeared prior to that. Bor appeared in October of 1963 in what is the 100th issue of Marvel canon in Journey into Mystery number 97's B story. The B oh. stories frequently at that point talked about as guardians in a pretty big way, as can be seen in a number of the collected story in, these, in the upcoming Loki omnibus that I don't know how they can keep printing those because it's just like a best of Thor. But, you know. After that, he didn't appear again until September 1976 in Thor Annual 5. So, and to date, since October 1963, Bor has had 14 appearances. Now, three of them were in the New Mutants, Loki, Journey into Mystery crossover, Exile. Oh. So, you know, and two of them are in Brian Michael Bendis's Avengers Prime. And it's really interesting to me that they went out of their way to reference Bohr. Jonah, did you have any idea who Bohr was? No, not in the comic sense, nor the mythological sense. So I, this was just a very new name to me. So I guess that makes Odin Bordenson? Borson. He's Odin Borson. Borson. Okay. Now, how did you feel about it, Nathan? I'd heard the name, but I hadn't really read much of the character. So I'm always like, oh, okay, that, yeah, that one guy, right? So like, it, it's kind of like, you know, when you get the, the crazy mutants on Krakoa, you're like, oh, that's a uh, birdie or cat's eye or whatever you want to say it is. But like, yeah, do you know anything about him or not? Like, now, there was only one other reference that made me kind of go, and that was to the World Eaters, right? For those of you listening at home, that was me wagging my fingers really excitedly and quickly. And the World Eaters are a reference to Matt Fraction's run on Thor. And the World Eaters appeared in a story arc that went from issue 615 to issue 621. What I find so interesting about referencing the World Eaters is Thor 619, part five of the World Eaters, features Boar. Oh. So I find myself 
very interested in where this might be going. Additionally, one of Boar's earlier appearances is Siege Loki, which is a Kieran Gillen issue from the JMS era. But to my point, with this one issue's references, Aaron and Torn Grunbeck paid tribute to the JMS run, the Kieran Gillen run, the Matt Fraction run. Well, and after that, you're just really in the Jason Aaron run for almost 10 years before going over to Donny Cates, which he showed up in his Donny Cates identity. In many ways, I see this issue and this miniseries as a love song to the last couple of runs of Thor. And I have all of that context. It makes it pretty easy for me to be amazed by this. Jonah, you don't really have much context at all. Whereas Nathan, you have some of the context. I think when you're reading a love song to a period like this, you do wind up in a very specifically, it's for one group only kind of thing. How do you guys feel about the accessibility of this title as a whole? I think as somebody who's read everything, this is a beautiful continuation of the things I love. But how do you guys feel with less experience? With any love song, right? If you've to an era like that, if you've read everything, you're going to get all the little nods, all the little in-jokes, all the little winks. And you're going to be like, oh my God, yeah, they brought up so-and-so. But even even my mid-range knowledge of that era, like I'm like, this is great. This makes me want to go back and more and be able to get all of those little in-jokes because it's so well-presented. It, it's lovingly love song, King of the Era. It's not like, hey, let's just throw together some like crap. It is not that at all it's really well done art beautiful it's something that's gonna make if you read this and you like this you're gonna want to go back and reread all of it i think i have like a little bit of a different opinion it more so from my perspective a lot of the context of what makes this even better i feel locked out of because i don't know it and i don't know if that's fully fair to new readers to have them feel like they're at a big disadvantage because they didn't read everything beforehand. And not that it's a lot, but it's more so in the sense of it kind of feels like I'm outside of the joke. It feels like everyone's able to laugh at something, but I don't understand the context of it. So how do I get to laugh at it? And how do I get to enjoy it? There's still things about this in store, this story that can make it stand alone, but the love song without a lot of proper explaining if you're just going to do it as an homage in a sense you're going to miss out on a couple of people who might not want to go back because they want to read what's happening now and they want to be able to understand what's happening now you know i i agree with you because i do sometimes worry about the accessibility of work i think it's a terrific book and i think it builds in a way that we don't really get to see books build and maybe that is why the legacy numbering is there but you said that it's not a lot to read I think you're being kind because <laughs> I beg to differ. You need to read the first 25 issues of Thor God of Thunder, plus the appropriate Original Sin five-issue miniseries. You would benefit from reading the body of Original Sin, but I don't think it's super necessary. However, Abuelit does show back up during the Jane Thor era. You then need to read the nine issues that surmise the Thor run. Then it's Secret Wars with Thors. You could skip Secret Wars, but then Thors is harder to follow. After that, you should probably read the Mighty Thors era, which is going to also have Unworthy Thors, and you're going to need to read all of War of Realms for it to really make sense when you get to the Del Mundo Thor. It's a lot, man. Yeah. It's like 150 issues. It's a lot. And it was enhanced, as we just discussed, by all of the incredible stuff that came before it. And one of the things that came before it that definitely had a huge impact on this issue for me was finally getting a better sense of the Hela and Carnilla stuff. 
I feel like that's been building for a really long time. And I feel like perhaps I got a little bit more out of the Craven stuff than I'd previously had. And that kind of helped me a little bit. I appreciated seeing a little bit more of these the babies, but I still kind of feel like I don't exactly understand what's going on. How do you guys feel about this story of women trapped in this cycle? Is it going somewhere for you guys? Because I can see it coming due. I can see the next issue doing something. And then perhaps we relaunch with an issue 20 down the line or something. But where are you guys at with the development of this narrative? I would like to go on record saying that I love this. This is a big old heavy women love women kind of book. There are a lot of uh, beautiful women loving women in, in this in this title. So if that's your thing, you might want to read it for that alone. That was one of my points while reading this and thinking about the Helicarnilla stuff. If again, feels like something I'm out of the loop on. I feel like a little more explanation really needs to go into their relationship into, well, has Carnilla having been having those, you know, that internal clock of she wants to have children. She's not sure how to go about talking with Hella. Why was she hiding it from Hella? Well, so Carnilla was going to marry Balder, but then some manipulations in the lead up to War of the Realms led to Carnilla manipulatively marrying Hella to protect the Nine Realms. And Hella is not one to spit in the face of such a great deal. So Hella was like, I'm in. Let's do this. Fine. And they've had a rather cantankerous marriage ever since. Mm. So like all those old sitcoms. Where they're like, the husband and wife don't like each other. and they just To the moon, Carnilla! <laughs> so Carnilla's like, hella can fuck herself. <laughs> kind of. It's just something that I wish was a little more prevalent and explained about their dynamic to help me understand the motivations of both sides of it. It's a lot to drop. It's also just a very, you know, heavy topic. Also, I don't know if Carnilla went about everything the exact proper way. I don't know if kidnapping babies as they're being born with magic is correct or moral no matter how much you want them but it's something that i it was what i felt was the most being left out on from understanding and being locked out of because i feel like this is a very big catalyst especially for jane's story throughout all of this that it i think a little more time spent the motivations and helping understand their dynamic for people reading from this point on would really help benefit the story I would say that's probably like my biggest thing about the story. I wasn't sure exactly where their relationship like fell. It does appear Hella kind of cares a little bit more about the relationship like on a personal level than maybe Hella. I mean, yeah, Hella cares more about the relationship on a personal level than Carnilla does. But it was it's also like expressed Carnilla obviously I think like you said Jonah is is wanting children is wanting life to grow in this place where life life comes to end in hell not to to grow and be created so I think they're just like it's really shining a light on that problem with their relationship I also think it's interesting how this week this issue came out Marvel also came out with a symbiote Spider-Man which features Carnilla in it in her like classic look and classic regalia so I just really I think it's interesting if Marvel is 
going to try to push these two characters more to the forefront of the Thor mythos than they've been presented as lately. Yeah, and hearing that Carnilla appeared in this symbiote Spider-Man looking all kinds of wrong is a little interesting. It makes me wonder if perhaps that comes at the end of this arc and maybe we see a change for Carnilla. Well, symbiote Spider-Man in the last run and arc featured, like, I I picked it up because I was like, oh my god, it's Captain Marvel, it's Monica Rambeau. So, like, the continuity and where it falls exactly is oh very past so it's like carnella's just appearing yeah carnella's just appearing it's the flashback ish yeah. okay yeah. yeah okay that's really interesting yeah then i wonder if we're gonna see her perhaps in love and thunder or maybe in whatever follows love and thunder i perhaps didn't expect to see a particular person getting a movie following love and thunder again when craven showed back up and stabbed more so more has this emotional epiphany and suddenly a, a decent tom hiddleston lookalike and gets stabbed through the chest. And the thing, I mean, like, I'm not trying to be like a guy about it or anything. And I mean, like, a that guy about it more than anything. But where is everybody heading again? Hell. So where is more about to go? Hell is actually dead. So if he's, I mean, like, he's just about to go meet his buddies. Like, he just took the express train. Uh, <laughs> speed, speed run to meet your friends in the afterlife, I guess. <laughs> Right? I just got to zip, zip to hell real quick, quick. And I I don't know. I, I kind of feel like that's where it has to go. He's got to just be like, hey guys, I'm down here now. And No, he has to go, oh, I'm a wolf. Oh, oh I'm a dead wolf. Hey. I mean, unless he, because I, I, I don't think he's going to, they are going to Valhalla. I don't think they're going to Valhalla. So how did you guys feel about more finally being like, I don't know, finally a person. So my name is Nicholas Joseph, legally speaking. So I have some affection for Nicholas Joseph Fury codenamed Aquarius as an Aquarius I love me some Nick Fury I love me classic Steranko Nick Fury I love Ultimate Universe Nick Fury I love Sam Jackson Nick Fury and I love Nick Fury's hot black son Nick Fury (laughs) I love him too and I saw Marvel put so much behind him and then say, fuck it, it didn't work. That was when they were doing Battle Scars and the Fearless Defenders. Speaking of, you know, Valkyries. And oh, cool. it wound up not working out for anybody. And, you know, we've seen a much larger reinterpretation of classic Nick Fury in the last couple of years. And I really do think that there is something worth attempting to create a version in the comics that reflects the version in the films. It's why Donny Cates' Thor probably looks a little bit more like long hair Chris Hemsworth. And it's why, for a while, Thor looked a little bit closer to Chris Hemsworth and Ragnarok. And why, for a while, Scott looked inexplicably like James Marsden. Like, we do the things that make sense for the films. Mystique became scaly because she was scaly in the movies, right? That went nowhere. (laughs) Right? I worry about creating a wet dog version of Tom Hiddleston in addition to having the polished comic book version of Tom Hiddleston. Because we all just saw Tom Hiddleston's insane body. I think Loki is in nowhere near as good shape as Tom Hiddleston. So it's just that way that, you know, a human being ages and a comic book doesn't. Loki in the comics is super beautiful right now. But seriously, Moore is like his sweaty cousin. What do you guys think about Tom Hiddleston's sweaty cousin, Moore? Just keep dragging her. (laughs) I do not like wet, slick back hair. It's not my kind of style. So it's something I used to do in middle school. And that's just every time I think of it. And no boy now. I did not look good back when I was in middle school, and I don't know if it looks good on everybody now. You and me, kiddo. Um, 
I will say the trope of teaching quote unquote a monster to love is a little bit cliche and a little it has been overdone, especially like forever and ever since the 1950s and probably even earlier with all those monster movies. But I actually really did appreciate the dynamic and chemistry between Moore and Jane. It was I, I hate to say this, it's actually a lot more interesting than it was with Runa. And I kind of wish that they had two separate titles of doing two separate Valkyrie things that maybe like intersected. But this one was about Jane teaching more how to be like a person, human and yeah. empathy and like have emotions. Yeah. Their dynamic actually worked a lot better than I was not only expecting, but just it, it felt like a much better duo to have in a title than what they set up for who should be the two yeah. characters to have the chemistry yeah I, i'd agree like more and jane they had some amazing chemistry like even in that first battle fight scene like you could tell that jane really took a shining to them that they were really like oh my gosh you know you are not the monster you seem to be which yeah you're right is a really tired trope but it's compelling so that's why it keeps getting revisited right Right. Runa and Jane, like you're saying, they don't really have that sort of like Runa's more like, get out of my way. I want to like flirt with your hot friend kind of thing. And I don't think Runa has that desire to be in that sisterhood of Valkyries. Like it's always has been presented to us in the past. I think Runa, she got she's like, nope, I'm done. I, I, I did it before. It's not my thing anymore. And maybe now thinking about it, it's very similar to this idea of old guard versus new guard of people who have paved the way and done stuff before versus the people who've you know come into it later and are now doing it and not that there's a disrespect from one end to the other but there are times where the older guard do things in established certain way and they are set in their ways where they don't really care for the new guard they have they don't like the way that the new guard would do things so they would uh it's they're you know you play by your own rules but if you're not playing by their rules they don't think you're doing exactly what they're doing so it might be a commentary on that and maybe they're not supposed to be friends or sisters but it feels like there are hints of it so i'm confused and i think we might see a new job for one of them if one of them became the queen of hell i wouldn't be surprised Angela was queen of hell for a little bit. Uh, you know, they made a weird decision in making Hella Angela in the movies. That was kind of a weird move. And it kind of changes the dynamic of how that interacts with the comics now in a lot of meaningful ways. So I wonder if maybe we'll see Runa as queen of hell mm. and Jane continue to be Valkyrie. Of course, there is the moment we need to talk about now. Did everybody else see that fucking Pokemon looking nonsense? Be like, I'm going to eat you, Hella. And Hella was like, what? <laughs> so we have a big old dino and big old dino is all chomp chomp. And I'm not sure what's happening. Is this a deeper hell? Did Runa coming back bring some other kind of hell with her? Is there some alternate darker hell? Is there a 10th or 11th or 12th realm? That we need to worry about. What does this dino dragon mean? And what is it meant to look like? Because it's kind of got some flashes, perhaps, of some King in Black stuff. But I don't think we're supposed to think it's one of those dragons. Mm -hmm. So what is this dragon? I don't see anything about it on uh, any of the sites I've checked. You know, I, I racked my brain. Is this a Thor thing I'm just not thinking of? But I don't 
don't I don't see anything. So who is this dragon and what is he here for? Do you guys have any thoughts? Well, I mean, even gods have bosses, right? So, like, even, like, even, like, the cosmic beings have the one who sits above or whatever, you know? Yeah, the like, one above all. Yeah, the one above all. Thank you. I was like, what is the name? Uh, but, like, so even even gods have bosses. So, this I, I think this is Hella's boss coming in and saying, like, what the fuck kind of realm are you running here? Like, you're letting, like, life grow here in hell? Like, fire, dude. Like, we got to get you out of here. But, like, that's why I think it is. Your half-torture hell sounds like heaven, Get the fuck out. See, they're like, wait, this hell is not a place of suffering. It's supposed to be what that's the in the handbook day one. I summon my purpleized bone dragon in attack position. <laughs> no, you must be careful, Joey. That is a dangerous card to summon. I'm Taya. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and my only other one is like Pegasus, and he's like, oh, dragon boy. And you know, it's. <laughs> Save us. Uh, it did kind of, like, didn't they do something like that in New Mutants, though? Like, with the whole second Valkyrie arc? Like, I seem to remember, like, some big dragon, but it might have just been Hella's pet, so maybe I'm misremembering that. Well, I guess we all gotta do some homework. Now, Jonah, what do you think about this dragon in general? Other than the fact that it's very Yu-Gi-Oh! Um... I I think it goes in line with what Hella said before, that the realm of the dead has a lot of secrets she would know. I think this is something that she was not aware of, and we're going to see how that plays. I also think, I am also unsure if this is actually a part of Hell and a being of Hell that Hella might have not have known about, or this is a conjuration of the children who are so very literally godly powerful that this fear is their manifestation of how they're trying to protect themselves and their mother who they just kind of saw die and get impaled like mm. what if they're okay what if they're like fear god people Ooh. and they're protecting themselves okay so you know that brings me to my wrap-up question we have one issue left legacy 19 mighty five how do you guys feel with this bigger than life story that had a solo series that wound up a team book in one crossover and now it's a duo book that's sort of set like two years earlier in Thor's mythos without being any in the past at all, except for the Flash stories. Now we have current Thor showing up. There are so many things going on here. More just died. We have Hela and Carnilla's story. You know, this might be the queerest positive book at Marvel in some ways. Yeah. Between Moore and Hela and Carnilla and the amount of characters of color getting spotlight here. This is and Runa. A, yeah, it's 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 a big deal, man. This is a, a very queer, very diverse book. And I think that's a really amazing thing to be coming from in many ways, a guy you could label a straight white guy in Jason Aaron, right? And I love seeing a, a woman artist on this book in the form of Erica Durso, right? That makes me so happy. Where do you guys sit with one issue to go? What's your vibe knowing that we have 20 pages to possibly wrap this up maybe till after Love and Thunder? Uh, I think that they have a lot of work ahead of them to wrap everything up neatly enough. It doesn't have to be a clean, you know, packaging as they would have to on the uh, Freeform show Rap Battle. <laughs> it's more of a sense of even if it's not wrapped up neatly, you can still set yourself up for titles later in the future for somebody to pick up. You don't have to end everything properly. You can have things be left off for either you or some somebody else to you know as a as a jumping off point for a later title so i am interested to see where things are going to go because it feels like i don't know if this felt like a natural like stopping point for the title 
I felt like that could have maybe used like maybe an issue or two, but an annual, just something yeah. to, to get back out of the, the story, right? And get back into the characters for a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally with yeah. you. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just meant to agree with you. Um, so I, I'm thinking it, it's not going to get wrapped up in really any sort of satisfying sort of conclusion. Like if you think about love songs for arrows, right? Which is which is what we're what we're saying this is, right? So if you think of like think of like Doctor Who, right? Think of episode turn left. It was sort of a love song of the tenant era where they went through all of that stuff there's something on your back But it's a total love song for the Tenant Era, right? So, like, when you think of love songs, they don't really wrap everything up. They might present it in a way that you can move forward to get to the wrap up, but they don't really wrap the stuff up. So I think we're going to probably in this next issue get maybe not a conclusion even to the hell arc, but we might find out more of this to set it up for a future story. I think we're going to get some idea of the direction Runa's going to go into, which will probably have something to do with taking care of hell or, or whatever, but I don't think we're going to get a neat wrap-up or really a satisfying conclusion. I think they're really setting this up for something else. There's, and if you do try to wrap it up in one issue, there's way too many loose ends to like even try. And they're both women that we want to see thrive in the next couple of films. You know, we want to see Tessa Thompson and we want to see Natalie Portman because we want to see Jane Foster and we want to see Runa the Valkyrie. So I feel like we find ourselves in a really precarious situation where I don't know that I even want to see it wrap up. Like, I would love to see the Valkyrie book just keep going as a partner book to Thor, kind of doing something completely different than Thor. Too often when you have a main character and a side character, the side character is just the support title that deals with the main character's fall off. But I would rather see Valkyrie be its own thing in the world of Thor while Thor continues being his own thing. And I would love another six-issue series so we could get to Legacy 25, and that would feel good. And then a five-issue series the year later to get us to 30. I don't know that I need them to keep trying ongoings. I maybe like the idea that Marvel could keep Legacy numbers going and cycle miniseries. It would allow you to do a Jane miniseries, followed by a Runa miniseries, followed by them together, followed by an annual You've got room. Most people buy their comics by content, not by title these days. They come in and ask for X-Men. They're not like, oh, I'm going to stop at X-Men 21. They hear, oh, there's an X-Men number one with most of the same team. It got set up in X-Men 21. I'll check it out. People don't break from characters the same way they used to. So that's, I think, my hope for this title, that it at least keeps going in some capacity. Oh, I had a thought. What if the title is setting it up? So I know they've already tried this before with Fearless Defenders, but what if it's setting it up so that Jane and Runa have to try to recreate the Valkyrie core? I would love it. I mean, and I think the smartest thing to do would be take women from the Marvel Universe that already would benefit from that. I don't want to see Vita lose Danny because they're doing such a great job with her. But I think Danny and Runa and Jane and Sif and, you know. Zarda on there. No, I'm just kidding. Just, yeah. Any one more person. Why not Zarda? Jason Aaron's connected to this book. That's a dangerous character that would take it in the wrong direction. That would give us a person who maybe isn't a great Valkyrie, but is a great character in Valkyries. So I would I would love that personally. Hey. 
Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. So this next segment was a lot of fun. We had started Power Pack the Powers That Be a number of months back, but there was a whole lot of books coming out and at some point it unfortunately fell off our radar. So we wanted to make things right by covering the series in its entirety here in a new segment called Trade Waiting, where we discuss the titles that maybe didn't make our radar in the first place going forward. We're going to take a look at these titles in trade and we're starting things off with Power Pack. As always guys, we love making this show for you every week. We'd love if you gave us a subscribe over on YouTube, Twitter, or wherever you get podcasts. And until next time, guys, keep those Kirk Cohen gateways open, those mutant lights lit, and we'll see ya. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. This is Trade Waiting, the show where we take a look at the stories you might have missed out on and want to know if you're ready for. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me, if you're ready for it, over at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And that's a good combination. Not only is Dazzler great, but Age of Apocalypse has aged really well. Yeah. There was like a time where it maybe wasn't the hottest thing right? One of the things that the 90s did was the 90s sort of pushed out a lot of what was, you know, because the 80s for me, like from my vantage point, I was born in 86. And my vantage point kind of feels like the 80s in comics sort of vacillated between somewhere around the Lost Boys and Punky Brewster. Those were the two speeds, right? And Age of Apocalypse, (laughs) for the most part, Age of Apocalypse was like, you know, Robocop all the way. (laughs) But there was a smattering of the heart and emotion that made the X-Men so great in the first place. And I think we've seen it more, especially as the original creators came back to those stories and were given the opportunity to delve into them a little bit more. Why am I talking about Age of Apocalypse? Well, like I said, I felt like the 90s kind of did push a lot of the 80s cuteness out. And one of the very traumatic losses from that was Power Pack. Now, I know not everybody is the biggest Power Pack fan, but I know the two of us are, Nathan, right? Yes, absolutely. So what was your first interaction with Power Pack. I think for me, it's X-Men 195. So when I started getting into comic books, they used to have these like two packs. It would be like two packs for a dollar. So like, I or 50 cents. I don't remember what it was. It was a while ago. But like, I would get these two packs and like, I would look for the ones that had New Mutants. So like, I got all like those old like New Mutants like 20s to 30 issues. And they would always be teamed up with like a Power Pack issue for some reason. <laughs> and it, which fine, it's cool. Weezy. That's right. Ah, makes sense actually. Actually, that was really good branding, cross-branding marketing on it. So that's how I got into Power Pack. I think probably like through those two packs, I used to collect, like, probably collected like half or more than half of the series that way. <laughs> well, let me just say that that's an amazing savings you have amassed, my friend, because one of the things that I discovered and doing a little bit more research for this title, of course, this title being Power Pack, The Powers That Be by the team of Ryan North and Nico Leon. Hey, Nico, cool name, bro. And I know we started coverage on this and then we kind of lost track of it because there were so many X books going on and we were maybe a little concerned this would be a little bit more outlawed than it was X-Men. So we kind of put it on hold for a little bit. And here we are in our first episode of Trade Waiting and we waited on it. The trade is here. Let's talk about it. So in the research for this episode, I came across a lot of information on the original Power Pack 1 to 62 that ran from August of 1984 to February of 1991. Now this series is significant because it has held on to its value like I can't fucking believe a lot of the issues pricing at about 
$8, if not like 12 and 13. Wow. It's a significant thing. And I think it's because of the very seldom reprints it's seen that kind of maybe makes it a little bit special. Now, during that original run of 1 to 62, Power Pack also had a graphic novel on top of many other appearances in books like Secret Wars 2 and X-Men and tons of appearances. But they had Power Pack and Cloak and Dagger, Shelter from the Storm, Marvel graphic novel in 1989. And then shortly after the conclusion of their series in uh, holiday fall season, that thing where, you know, you release the holiday comics in fall yeah. so everyone has time to buy them. In 1992, we got the Power Pack holiday special. It would be some time before Power Pack were given any significant treatment. And then in 2000, they were given a four-issue miniseries. That was not the restart on the franchise I think Marvel was hoping for. Of course, 2000 was sort of a rough time for Marvel in general. And we wound up with one of my favorite iterations of Power Pack, the Mark Summerack and Gera Huru era of Power Pack, which saw from May of 2005 through April of 2009, Power Pack 1 through 4, X-Men and Power Pack 1 through 4, Avengers and Power Pack 1 through 4, Spider-Man and Power Pack 1 through 4, Hulk and Power Pack 1 through 4, Fantastic Four and Power Pack 1 through 4, the very differently named Iron Man Power Pack 1 through 4, Power Pack Day 1, 1 through 4, Scrolls versus Power Pack 1 through 4, so this fucking Power Pack side series universe even got it on Secret Invasion in its own way, fuck these dudes, right? And then it all kind of culminated with Wolverine Power Pack 1 through 4, which ran January through April of 2009. From there, Power Pack received very little love until the sort of groundbreaking era of Marvel Legacy did a lot to reset what we thought about a lot of that universe. And we got Power Pack number 63, which technically shipped in 2017, but it has a cover date of January 2018. Now, I was not really still interested in Power Pack by the end. By the end, it was being written by a guy by the name of Michael Higgins. Now, Michael Higgins is awesome, but what I know Michael Higgins best for is probably his sort of Excalibur fill-in stuff Mm. and like the occasional annuals appearance. So I don't know that I don't like Michael Higgins as much as I don't necessarily associate him with the best of X-Men. So as somebody who is a Power Pack fan, how did you feel about getting this conclusion? I mean, literally 26 years later, how did you feel getting this final story, putting kind of the end you needed? Or were you just kind of like, why did they go? I literally loved those runs. I don't think I loved that issue. I loved the idea of the titles being revisited because they also did Dazzler 43. And so I was like, oh my God, yes, these people are getting all these like final issues or like, you know, like a continuation. And the the issue itself was middling there. It wasn't like great. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't like, oh my God, I've got to get this and like this really was necessary. So that's it, it wasn't the defining issue. Maybe yeah. hoped for a 26 year later finale. You'd, you'd hope. You'd hope. Now, were you a fan of the Samurai Girahuru era? I mean, I just think it was so cute. I worked at a comic shop during those years. So I picked up a lot of those digests. I just thought they were so sweet. As someone who maybe has a stronger affinity for true power pack, do you maybe not feel as warmly as I do? Or are you on the warm train? I, I'll be honest, I really stayed away from them because I 
don't necessarily love out of continuity tale, right? So it's it's a totally separate universe. Mr. Tazler AOA, I get it. <laughs> no, I, I get it. It's totally different. Yeah. One has bearing on the final outcome of the characters yeah. and invented beautiful new iterations, while the other sort of, and no offense to the creators I just said I love so much, maybe dumbed down some of Wheezy and June's yeah. spectacular familial development and that that i do get yeah it seemed very like power pack calvin and Hobbes to me which is not a bad thing it's just not bad at all wasn't something that drew me in i i did see i did read a few of them they were cute it just never really drew me in and it was never like it wasn't my power pack right so say no more say no more because (laughs) like we recently ran a segment in fact it's gonna be part of this episode so i'm responding to something in this episode (laughs) that's amazing So, number one, in another segment, some of our amazing correspondents, Josh, Steve, and Drew, said there are no bad runs of Daredevil. (laughs) As a guy who's literally read all of them, I promise you, if you look hard enough... You'll find them, right? But beyond that, I loved everything that the guys said. It was such a beautiful discussion of what they love about comics. And one of the things that they specifically said that they loved so much. And I, I feel so funny because like, I'm not coming at anybody for their Daredevil preferences. I don't want anyone to think that that's um, what I'm saying. But the group said that one of the things they don't understand is why Generation X isn't more in print. And I definitely agree with them. I maybe do think that Marvel is staying away from a number of the creators who worked on Generation X on sort of the beginning end and the the end end, right? I think the middle creators, like the brilliant Jay Farber is, you know, so underappreciated. I am a famous Larry Hamistan on this show. I talk so much about what a genius he is, but I always do make sure to make the joke. I just don't know that Larry Hama had his finger on the pulse of what was cool and exciting in the teenage years of the mid 90s. So I'm not sure what happened there. But I bring all this up because I think Christina Strange Gen X is my Gen X. Yes! I like, I don't even know what to say because, you know, I've read all, let's go with 85 of the original. Let's throw in underground special annuals, crossover issues, tie-ins. Let's, let's you know, let's call it a, a fat 85. Let's even, you know, and let's throw in the intro. Let's call it a Thickums 100, okay? Let's say Gen X Volume 1 is a Thickums 100. I still like Christina Strange Gen X a little bit more. At what? 11 issues, 17 issues, whatever it was. And their total appearances is not much more. It just really rang true with me. So I really do understand the idea of something that is so a part of who you are growing up as a comics fan. Something Because we all have that thing we magicked into. I actually magicked (laughs) into Daredevil. My dad bought a multi-pack and gave it to me. That was the first comics I ever read. Daredevil really imprinted on me. And for those of you who know me well, the second comic I ever read was a Green Lantern comic. So you might understand why I have a complete collection of all the rings and why when I go to Great Adventure, I cosplay Green Lantern. You might understand these things a little, right? And so I do get this idea of a transformation of something you love into something not quite what you wanted. Now, my further investigation led me to something I didn't know existed, which was a one-shot in 2019 called Power Pack Grow Up. Yeah, I didn't know this was a thing. 
And, you know, could you tell me a little bit more about it? Because I don't really understand what it was because here the kids felt much younger. Julie feels 20 fucking years younger than she was 20 years ago in The Loners. And, you know, I I feel like I expect some continuity on characters like Franklin to be fluxy. Mm -hmm. But these kids, you know, Jack is very stunted in where he was in 1984. I'm not like I'm as somebody who teaches these kids. I'm not sure sure that Katie was written to grade level. Mm. Truly, her art, it would indicate to me, perhaps we needed to work with her a bit more. Like, as like a parent, I would be concerned about some of the spelling errors, because we know her to be like, wasn't she 14 at one point? Like, so what is growing, what is grow up? And why don't I understand how 63 grow up and this can all function together? They can't, they can't, they can't. Okay, okay. That's that's the problem with, that's the problem I have with this mini-series, is it really like it's not it's not a horrible story but at all at all it's, it's a decent story and it it's just it doesn't fit in there's there's a lot of continuity issues and even even so talk about one of the plot points in this miniseries was hey we really want to tell our parents that we have powers right they they did that the parents had a breakdown the parents had a breakdown when they found out their kids were superheroes they literally cannot tell their parents that they have powers or else they'll have a breakdown again so like the fact that that was a plot point in this miniseries was was problematic to me because it really ignored a big plot point in the past for Power Pack. Same with like, same with costumes, right? So they're like, how many times do we see them in this miniseries putting on costumes when like, uh, hello, you just costume on and like, yeah. I mean, and they kind of seem to like artistically costume on, like they seem to like magic it. And I wonder, because I I had both of the same issues, right? Right. I wonder if we're trying to stay away from problematic mental illness tropes, but in order to do so, we've oversimplified Simplified what we're talking about, right? We're kind of in an effort to correct the course. We're just kind of pretending that didn't happen, which in many ways invalidates a number of the stories that are why we're even doing this, right? Yep. And secondarily, um, you know, I, I feel like it's the term you and I use the most, MC unification. Yep. If Power Pack are going to get an animated series, they're going to need a magical girl transformation. Yeah. And to have, you know, Nico Leon come in and design this super cool you know, sort of like touchpad transforming magic. That's really endemic of how the comics can't get away from their counterparts anymore. Yeah. I do share your problems. Even if I can reason them away, they do kind of get to me a little bit. And you know, this might be part of it too, but like in between Power Pack, right? Alex Power spent a good chunk in New Warriors, right? Fantastic Four Years and Warriors for New Years. (laughs) (laughs) The Fury Warriors, whatever they are. Uh, the Fantastic Warriors. That would be a, yeah, he was in New Warriors, and then obviously then and he was a big part of that uh Future Foundation. Future Foundation. Thank you. I was like, it's FF, but what is it really called? Future Foundation run. Fire uh, Fist? What is it again? Fire <laughs> Fire Fest. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> like, why didn't they go to the Fantastic Four to try to have them be one of their mentors? Like, oh my god. <laughs> like, and, and I get it when you put it that way that they're trying to make it a very MC unification kind of thing to it trying to revisit and revamp it a little bit i just think where 
whereas some stories have done a great job of telling it, like America Chavez, right? Made in America has done a great job of saying, hey, cool, all of this stuff was what she thought, but this is what it really is. Yeah, there's a little there's a little difference, but yeah. you know, we're not disregarding what came before. Yeah. So that's what I that's what I'm thinking this has to be. It has to be some of that. But then they reference the X-Men love. And Wolverine shows up. And yeah. so essentially the story we're here to talk about is kind of a, in many ways, a hard reset on Power Pack to a younger iteration that while acknowledging bits of the continuity outside of it is sort of reliant on a general sense of reset, right? And the story sees the four kids reunite for the first time in some time as Alex has been busy and Julie is busy with Ricky and Jack is dealing with burgeoning testosterone problems. (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> and again, I just want to make sure Katie's reading at grade level. Like the educator in me is really concerned about her because one of the things I did not get from this series was a sense of their ages. Yeah. I feel like one of the best devices was having the narration rotate through the kids because I was able to get a sense of who they were. No, I take that back. I was able to get a sense of who they are with no sense of who they were. Yeah. That's what I think I need to say. It almost feels like Comedia dell'arte, where you're kind of casting the role. The character doesn't need okay. a backstory. The character, you don't need to know their motivations because you understand that guy is the heel and you yeah. understand that guy is the straight man. So you don't need a compelling understanding of the individual characters and their motivations because you have a general understanding of the characters and their motivations. And that does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And it's almost disappointing that there were references to prior power pack things because I truly loved the jab that we can switch powers actually and how they don't do that even though by now I would think these four kids would have worked together to learn how to do that if nothing else Katie and Jack would have that would have been something the two who stayed behind would have had fun with it would have been a game and I, I have a specific thing I would have rather and it sounds so strange but this for what this adventure is could have been told a little differently and been the origin of a bold new young black family of heroes at our power pack and there could have been a second power pack and the original power pack could have been their mentors and that would have been a bolder story a stronger story because my only actual problem with this miniseries and I can't wait to get to all the things we loved in just a moment but my my real problem was, as contributor Jonah would say, commit to the bit. What are we here? Are we a power pack reset or are we a continuation of the thing that we were talking about? Because I don't know which it is and I'm feeling a little confused from it. Yeah, I, I think your idea of recasting power pack as a, as a team of color would have been amazing, would have probably solved my biggest issue with this miniseries like overall, which was that it doesn't acknowledge the fact that all these kids are being incarcerated for being superheroes, but you've got the little team of little white kids who get away with- Running around. Yeah, they're they're running around, they're getting away with it. Like, you know, okay, if that's something you want to point out and point up, like bring up and point out, do it in a way that, cool, let's acknowledge that these kids know they have the privilege that they got away with what they got away with, whereas these other heroes didn't. But there's there's no self-awareness of that. In this 
book. Right. And, you know, Ryan North dealt the hand he was given. And by that, I mean, I don't think writers come in and say to Marvel, I don't care what you got planned for three (laughs) crossovers from now. And fuck your little movie studio. You can eat (laughs) Disney Plus. This is my power pack idea. And y'all are going to do it because I just put my nuts on the table. I don't (laughs) think any writer does that. And I certainly don't think someone who wrote this with the deft love that Ryan North wrote this with did that. I instead think Ryan North was told, you know, either pitch me or pitch me Power Pack. He either pitched this story or pitched this story for Power Pack. And Marvel Editorial said, this is what it needs to be in line with what's going on. Yeah. We have this thing going, we can have this thing because, you know, they, they pitched these things two years out. Yeah. And they probably said, we have this thing coming up called Kamala's Law, and you're going to be part of the launch effect of it. And I feel like for that reason, Ryan North did the best he possibly could with what felt like a great opportunity to play a losing hand. Yeah. The story is well executed. It's not a bad story. It's At just, all. It's just the parts that probably intentionally don't fit are, are kind of what are my sticking points. And... Is for them to continue publishing this book obviously means they have some sort of plans for Power Pack because Agreed. they they canceled New Warriors, they canceled a lot of the uh, minis. So obviously they want something to happen from that sort of thing, or or some sort of you know even if it's got, they've got to keep the IP copyright, whatever. Kind even of. if it's IP work, then yeah. you publish the right kind of IP work. You publish a uh, uh, quiet, shitty little annual, yeah. and you just let it suck, and you let it be small, <laughs> and you let it be just desk stories that you found in a drawer in 1987 like they're like literal drawer stories yeah like (laughs) you don't publish a miniseries you don't believe in and that's why i don't think marvel doesn't believe in this story and i think for any execution problems it had i I do want to touch on some of the stuff i loved about it yeah and i loved the idea of the artwork pages i think while i love the idea of the artwork pages more the execution of them is a little bit off which is where you know that's kind of the joke we're making that it's usually the other way with this book but that's like it was such a great idea to have the kids draw it i maybe would have loved it if they found a way to make it all four kids yes if katie's had been this little picture book jack's had been a comic if (laughs) julie's was a you know paint while you drink uh, (laughs) thing and alex's is a computer 3d rendering in cad you know what i mean like i would have loved that maybe a little more to fit in with the narration style but the device was very true to power pack yeah for yeah sure. no that was that was amazing i love i love their work call there were some great callbacks to some previous issues that i loved like the boogeyman is like the start off villain right like how how more classic power pack can you get than that wolverine showing up in like wolverine like that was amazing and that was so cute and i was like okay this is great and and just the interactions they had with the other heroes outside of you know those outside of wolverine they did call on the fact that Power Pack is a long-established superhero team with roots in the community. So ah, there's there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of really cute stuff. So much cute stuff. I was kind of like, why the wizard? Convince me why the wizard. And then it became kind of clear why the wizard. Because Mad Tinkerer is a little too fucking nuts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Annihilus would just eat the children. And, you know, you can't put, you know, like Annihilation from (laughs) X of Swords in there. Right? Mm -hmm. You need to pick a villain. (laughs) Right? You need to pick a villain that's like 
Yeah. Even if you're in the NBA, when you're hanging out with your five-year-old nephew, you don't dunk hard on him, right? So you can't send a Galactus-level threat against Power Pack in their reintroduction. I know they have faced Galactus before, but the yeah. reintroduction to this audience can't be that. So Wizard is kind of a, a sloppy bitch. So like, yeah. I get using Wizard. I thought the conceit of they're being shitty to one another because the wizard is in them. And so now he has their insecurity was the right balance of those two devices. Yeah, I don't like that device that something's influencing the people making me dicks. I don't love that device, but damn, that explained the kids arguing too much in a way that I accepted. And then the converse was great. Like now he's insecure. Raise your hand if you've been personally victimized by Wolverine. And like, yay, (laughs) it was such a nice touch that I thought, wow, what a cute little jump back to 1980s comics in a way that did fit Power Pack really beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. I I would have loved some like maybe like have like Danny Moonstar or something show up too because they've got, you know, like, oh, cute. But like, you know, it was it was a good balance of bringing up the history and moving it forward. Maybe I didn't like love the direction it was moving into, but like it was a good it was a really good balance of that. I did like to the way he modernized some of the kids, like, you know, having Jack be a try to be a YouTube star. That was yeah, that was that was cute. And that really fit Jack's personality. So uh, Julie and Alex read pretty well, pretty much what I expected them to be. Katie read a lot like she used to read and get it. We're ignoring some of that middle stuff that nobody really. But it was the other Mollyfication. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that Molly was written the way Brian K. Vaughn's younger sister behaved at that age. But one of the things that maybe needs to be considered is that frequently people only behave the way a younger sibling behaves because they are over infantilized by the Mm. older siblings acting as a second set of adults. So Molly as a single, as a single child, as an only child behaving the way that someone in a more attention paying nuclear family would behave as the youngest child didn't really track for me. And with that in mind, I can accept Katie, but that's why I keep saying, I want to make sure she's at grade level. Like she's not portrayed in a way that I believe is disrespectful. She's portrayed in a way that I feel is over infantilizing, which actually tracks with the youngest of four. Okay. I have a weird thought, though. I kind of couldn't read a difference between Alex and Julie. They read very similar, which I think is the only real failing of the team's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. You have two very responsible older siblings who function as each other when the other can't. They have their own foibles and their own follies, but they function very similarly. Alex is quick with a badass fact, just like Julie is. We saw Julie do it a little more here, but that's who Alex is in a lot of his other appearances. And then you have two much more immature children. I could definitely read a difference between Katie and Jack. And that's because I think Jack does personify, like, I mean, I I joke the burgeoning testosterone of a 13 year old boy, but oh my God, (laughs) you know, I just thought that there was a charm to the fact that by alternating the perspective, the maybe similarities between Julie and Alex didn't really shine through until I looked back. And I thought that was kind of a neat way to do it. How did you feel about the kids? and their narrative voices having grown up all these years uh it's it's hard so like like jack really read like how i expected jack to read totally katie even though yes she was a little 
little infantilized. She did read like I expected Katie to read. Like classic Katie. Yeah, like sure. classic Katie. She, she really read like classic Katie. And I, I know she should have moved past that point. But also I know that the, the readers are like, oh, Katie should talk like this still. So that's that's part of probably what's going into it. The problem with Alex and Julie is they've had a lot more development on their own since they were a part of Power Pack. So that's not the same Alex who was such a big player in the Future Foundation to me. And that's not the same Julie who showed up in the pages of Runways or even Future Foundation went into space with her brother. That's, same, same. Yeah, yeah. I'm completely with you. Yeah. So, you know, and it, it's kind of like... We have to do that with other characters all the time, too. Yeah. You no, know, we kind of hand wave when this person was evil for a year and <laughs> kind of pretend that Cyclops didn't die recently and, you know, before everybody kept dying, right? <laughs> and there's just kind of a lot of stuff that we don't interact with too much to make characters make sense. And that's fine. Yeah. I am here. I also want to take a minute to say the wonderful job Nico Leon did. He created a book filled with childlike wonder. Yeah. One of the things I like to talk about is deformation of figure, the way that every artist naturally makes stuff look not quite the way it's supposed to on purpose. Yeah. That's a stylized element. That's a, a defining growth moment. And what he created here was pixel for pixel, ready to be a video game, ready to be an animated series, ready to be translated to television, ready to be translated to probably like a CGI movie. I don't think Power Pack can lead a live action movie at this point. It has nothing to do with the quality of Nico Leon's art, and it has certainly nothing to do with Ryan North's story, but I think he created a visual that would translate to the mediums that I do see them working on, whether it's yeah. Disney Plus or the like. Yes. Yeah, no, it would be, I, uh, Power Pack would be a great Disney Plus animated or even live action series. Like, it would be it would really translate well into that, and it would fit the younger market that, you know, obviously they're trying to push Power Pack back into. I think that's one of the problems with Power Pack, is they can never really, they can never really grow up. Right. They can never age out of this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like no one's clamoring for tiny Titans go to high school. <laughs> okay, now I want that, though. I seriously. desperately want it, right? <laughs> so all said and done, looking back, this was five issues. I think it really picked up at three. Yeah. I think it was really rolling at five. The ending was a little too fast for me. Those yeah. last three pages were a little too fast. I understand that that's not how the industry works, but this book could have used four more pages, kind of like a nice epilogue. And I think if you're a fan of Power Pack, give it a read, figure out whether this fits your fan of power pack them or not and i would probably only say the one like is we shouldn't have brought up whitey like <laughs> should have just been magical space horse and moved on and it's just the name the imagery of it it's a little silly yeah i mean like i, I wouldn't have minded like an appearance by friday but like you know like the ship that's cool the ship's a cool looking ship right but uh, i think the more you keep him away from the uh, chameleon how do you say like is a chameleon i thought like, it was chameleon yeah like chameleon I, yeah 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 the more you stay away from the chameleon origin story and like kind of like hand wave that away i think the better for it and please never bring up alec turning into a chameleon <laughs> ever never 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 yeah so your final thoughts what do you think do you think it was worth waiting on do you think it's worth the read and like i mean i would say pick it up on comiXology if you don't mind yeah. uh but if not it's on marvel unlimited and that's a great place to catch it what do you think about this 
book, all said and done. I think it's worth a read for uh, Marvel Unlimited for sure. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go out and pick it up before you read it first because it's, it's going to be very hit or miss. And if you're expecting, if you're a longtime Power Pack fan, it might not hit the buttons you're wanting it to hit. I think mm. it's probably, it's definitely geared more towards a younger reader. For so sure. the longtime Power Pack fans aren't going to, aren't going to necessarily appreciate it. Uh, I do think overall, is it is it a worthwhile read? I think there's a lot of parts of it that do make it worthwhile. And the art and the stylization on that really is it's adorable. And the writing is good too. The writing's good too. I, I don't want to say it's not. The writing's good too. It's just, it's not the iteration of Power Pack that I was expecting as a longtime fan. And, you know, we're really saying that a lot of that we understand better now from what yep. editors are telling us is that that's from editorial, not necessarily yep. the editors that talk to us on Twitter, but kind of like corporate editorial. Yeah. So all said and done, Ryan North, great job. Nico Leon, kind of an amazing job. Yeah. Bold new direction for Power Pack? Maybe not, but certainly a new direction for it. Yes, absolutely. 